You're listening to Trust Me, You're Broke. I'm your host, Julia, a millennial consultant in banking, here to give you some tips and tricks on how to make, save, and grow your money. Let's get started. Last episode, I discussed why I chose not to invest in some stocks due to my risk tolerance level. And as a result of that, I lost out on the opportunity to make anywhere from $160,000 to $300,000. But as I said in that video, with stock investments, discipline is key. Chasing after short-term gains can actually often result in heavy losses because there's more volatility. In fact, 95% of day traders who try to do this exact thing end up losing money. So it's a very real problem if you're not disciplined. So if you're interested in hearing that story and why I chose to forego all that wealth, go check that out. But in today's episode, we're going to go through step-by-step how you can start investing today. Now, I asked on my Instagram at Wealth by Julia, by the way, if you're not following, go follow me now. Um, I asked what you wanted to hear this week, and the top response was an investing how-to. So I set out to create this episode, and honestly, I was just immediately hit with a wall while writing this episode because there's just so much to talk about. So this will likely be a two-part series, maybe even a three-part series, depending on how deep we want to go. But in this episode, we'll talk about the basics of the basics the type of investments that you can make, how to open an account, what type of account to open, and hopefully clarifying some of the jargon around this industry. At the end of this podcast episode, you should be able to build a portfolio that makes sense for you. So starting from the very basics, I just want to clarify what stocks versus shares are. So let's imagine a flea market, right? And each stall represents a company and that stall is called a stock. Now, the shares are what they sell in exchange for your money. So imagine yourself going through a flea market and you see the stall Apple, you see the stall Microsoft, you see the stall Amazon, for example, and you go there and you say, I would like to buy three shares, and they give you three shares in exchange for money. Now, each company distributes or issues a different amount of shares depending on their funding need and situation. So for Apple, for example, at most, they have around, I believe, 21 billion shares in circulation. What does that mean? That means even if you're technically buying a tiny, tiny piece and ownership of the company, your piece is likely too small to have any significant ownership uh, for a company. So let's say you want to buy a thousand shares of Apple. Even if you bought that many, you would not have significant ownership or decisive power or any of that over the company. So because you can't call up a company like, let's say, Apple and say, yo, Apple, I want to buy three shares of your stocks, there are people who stand as the middlemen and they are called brokers or the organization that they're in are brokerages. For Canada, there are different types of brokerages, such as your traditional bank. So all banks will offer some type of uh, investment product or platform, and so they can be counted as brokerages. So in Canada, for example, there's TD Direct Investing slash Goal Assist, BMO, Investor Line, Scotia iTrade, CIBC Investors Edge, RBC Direct Investing, etc. And then there are online brokerages, independent brokerages that are not associated with a financial institution like Wealthsimple or like Quest Trade that you can use. 
And how to choose which brokerage suits you best depends on a couple of things, but the biggest factor is cost. Because you want to maximize your returns on your investments, you don't want to spend too much money paying the institution or the brokerage money for management fees or just to be able to trade. So some things to look out for when you're researching your brokerage in terms of how much they will charge. Firstly, is there a minimum amount that you have to invest? So oftentimes they will try to lure you in with like, you know, 0% fees for trading or 0% etc. but you have to invest a minimum of $5,000, let's say. Or they'll say, okay, we won't charge you for the $5,000, but if you don't have $5,000, then we're going to charge you for setting up a TFSA, let's say. The second, and perhaps more specifically, is how much do they charge per trade? So a lot of these big banks actually do charge you per trade. Even Quest Trade does as well, which is an independent online brokerage. So they'll say things like, um, per trade, you have to give us $9.95. Perhaps a very common price right now is $6.95 per trade. So as you can imagine, if you want to, let's say you're someone with not a lot of funds and you just want to invest to see what it's like, get comfortable with it, but you're in a scenario where you have to withdraw your money, regardless of the, the profit amount or percentage, you just you know feel more comfortable withdrawing the money, right? Then if you hadn't uh, made at least 6.95 increase in the share price, then you're going to have to end up paying more than you originally set out to earn. Personally, this type of calculation is not what I wanted to do. I didn't want to feel like my money was bound to this like this time where I had to wait until these stocks appreciated a certain amount so that I don't lose money in fees because I just wasn't um, familiar with the stock market or very familiar with trading or investments at the time. So I was relatively risk averse. So I wanted freedom to be able to withdraw my money anytime without, you know, having to calculate and say, oh my God, the fees are X amount. So I have to wait till my shares have appreciated in value by X plus alpha amount. So this is not an ad, but I personally use Wealthsimple for that reason. The reason is because they charge, first of all, $0 on trades. So if you want to you know, uh, buy a stock, an individual stock, and then you want to sell it, they don't charge you for that transaction. Um, and you can withdraw money at any time. And there's no minimum. So I didn't have the pressure to you know, invest a full $1,000 immediately or $5,000. I could have put as low as $10 in and started trading. Now, if you are interested in investing through Wealthsimple, I do have a referral link in my profile and also I think in the description somewhere over here. Also, if you go on my um, link in bio for my Instagram, you can also access it there. Uh, if you go through my referral link, you will get $10,000 managed for free. And this is for a portfolio management for free. It usually costs 0.5% on whatever X amount of dollars you decide to invest. So you can get it for free for up to a year. So if you're interested, go on there and use my referral link so that you don't have to pay the 0.5% uh, fees. 
So you can do, you know, ample research on which one's better, which one's not. Obviously, ultimately, I went with Belt Simple. It was just way easier for me to understand. It was 100% digital, so I didn't have to sign any forms, you know, physically and mail it, etc. It was just very easy for me to get started. So that's the account or the brokerage I chose to go with. But, you know, a lot of people go with Quest Trade. A lot of people go with TD. I mean, a lot of people go with their major banks as well, just because the majority of their funds are there. Now, when opening an account, there's actually a series of questions that the brokerage should and would ask you, including your goals, your risk tolerance, also how long you uh, intend on investing for, because all of those things work to set up a good balanced portfolio for you. I will discuss kind of the different assets that you can invest in and how you can build a good portfolio that suits all of your needs. But before I do that, I'm going to just go through uh, what's going to happen when you open your account. So firstly, they're going to ask you questions, including those goals and risk tolerance, like I said, but they're also going to ask you for, you know, your personal information, your residency information, your SIN number. Uh, these are all to try and understand what your you know legal status is in Canada. And then they'll ask you, what account you want to open. So there's different types of investment accounts that you can open. And if you're not familiar with TFSAs and RSPs, make sure you go back to my episodes um, because I do have one uh, episode wholly dedicated just to talk about TFSAs and RSPs. I'm just looking right now what that is. It's episode three. So go back to that if you haven't uh, listened to that one yet, but they will ask you what account. Now, usually the first account that they will have listed is the non-registered account. What does that mean? Usually the paperwork on the non-registered account is a little lighter than the rest, but what you need to remember with non-registered accounts is that any profit you make off of your investment, you are going to have to pay taxes on it. And how they tax you is basically they take 50% of your earnings, your profit, and then they tax you on the highest income bracket of your income level. So they include it in your yearly income and then they tax you on it. And obviously you don't want to lose on that. So that's why I recommend going with either a TFSA or an RRSP. Now I talk about this in great detail in episode three, but in a nutshell, if you are a more short-term, you know, like risk-averse person who's new to this and you just wanna be able to try getting into investing, but also your goals are in the short term, so you're looking to withdraw your money in the short term, I would recommend a TFSA because with a TFSA, you can freely withdraw and contribute anytime, anywhere you like, whereas an RRSP, you know, there's a couple more restrictions. When you withdraw, you have to pay taxes. So an RRSP is a little bit more for the longer run or for uh, preparing for retirement, which is why if you have more short-term goals, go with a TFSA. At this point, if you're using a robo-advising platform, they would have automatically kind of drawn up or designed a portfolio that suits your needs, and they will automatically assign your funds to these uh, different types of investments. Now, if you're having a meeting at a bank and you're trying to open up a brokerage there, then they will likely ask you another question, and that is, do you wanna go self-directed or do you wanna go with mutual funds? Now, your banking needs might be different than mine, but my recommendation is when you're asked that question, always, 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 if you can, go with self-directed and not mutual funds. 
Now, at this point, you might be asking, okay, what are mutual funds though? So basically what a mutual fund is, is a portfolio of different types of stocks all in one. And what these banks do is basically they take money from different investors, pull it together, and then they, using their investment strategy, try to get you an earnings. So it's an actively managed portfolio, which means there's a person behind it, looking at it, taking care of it. The problematic thing about mutual funds, in my opinion, is A, because there is a person actively managing your portfolio, you have to pay them fees. And so usually um, the fees are on average around 2.23%, which means for every $100,000 you're investing, you will be losing around $2,230, which is quite significant, right? So even though you're starting off with $1,000 or even $100 to begin with, um, this MER, which is called the management expense ratio, which is just the fee, you know, that, you know, to pay the person behind your portfolio, um, it will add up in the longer run. And investing is usually for the longer run, you get benefits the longer you invest. And so it will definitely add up. So even though you're saying, okay, Julia, I'm not going to invest $100,000 right now, in the future, you definitely will up to that level and you will start losing a lot of dollars. And keep in mind, this is on top of the per trade uh, cost. There are also different types of costs associated that you know we kind of call hidden fees with these um, mutual funds. So for example, oftentimes mutual funds will have a minimum dollar amount. And if you don't meet that minimum dollar amount threshold, then they could have a small order fee, something like that. You know, you've seen it in Uber Eats maybe, <laughs> but in the uh, stock investment world, that also exists. So there's a lot of additional costs that you really don't need to be incurring, especially with technological advances these days with robo-advising, which are basically bots um, managing, actively managing your portfolio. Now, as a stark contrast, in the Wealth Symbol um, app that I use, so for context, I have Wealth Symbol Trade, which is I get to, it's self directed, I get to choose, pick and choose what stocks I want. And then there's just Wealth Symbol Portfolio Management. And so I have around three portfolios going on, and they're managed basically by a bot that readjusts the proportion of my um, investment based on my risk level. And so those cost. 0.5% per year. So that versus a 2.23% is a huge difference, which is why I decided to go with Wealth Simple. Personally, I don't really understand the benefits of going with a mutual fund, but maybe you have that comfort of having a person manage, you know, being able to speak to someone uh, who can speak to your portfolio. Maybe that's something you're looking for. But honestly, I think the MER of around 2.23 just doesn't justify the benefits. And also, oftentimes, you don't really get higher returns just because you uh, sign up for a mutual fund. Um, so personally, I would not sign up for a mutual fund, but obviously the choice is yours. All right, now for the specifics on what you can invest in. So a lot of people think investing means, oh, investing in stocks, but there's actually a different variety of different investment categories that you can make. And also there's different products even within uh, stock investments that you can make. So there's largely three categories in the investments that you can make. First of all, there are equities. Second, there are fixed income assets. And then third, there's commodities. 
So when we talk about equity, basically we mean a small slice of a company, a slight ownership, basically shares and stocks. Okay. So then there are within equities, there are independent stocks, which are self-directed portfolios. You can pick and choose which stocks you would like to buy, um, which is also what I do on the side with a smaller portion of my funds. Then there are groups of stocks that you can buy at the same time. And these are what we call ETFs. ETFs stand for exchange traded funds, which don't really mean a lot, but basically think of them as groups of stocks that you can buy at the same time. And what that does is it basically provides diversity in your portfolio, in your overall investments. And as a result of that, um, they're considered a little less risky than you picking and choosing what stocks you would like to buy. So there are different types of ETFs, for example, stock ETFs, sector ETFs, commodity ETFs, etc. Now I guarantee you, you've heard of this index or this ETF before, and it's the S&P 500, Standard & Poor 500. When people, when the news, the media talk about, you know, um, stock investments, when you look at your iPhone with the stock investment graphs, you always see S&P 500, right? Um, that is a type of ETF that you can buy into. S&P 500 is a collection of the 500 best performing companies, US companies out there. They're part of this index called the S&P 500. And if you want to, you can buy a portion of the S&P 500. And what that does for you essentially is you're buying a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit of 500 different companies at a time. So instead of you picking and choosing all 500 of them, you can now buy a small fraction of all of those 500 companies. And why it's considered less risky is because when one company is doing really poorly, another can be doing really well. And so as a result of that, your kind of profits or your earnings will equal out. Like take Enron, for example. Enron went completely bankrupt. Their stocks tanked. Had you put all of your basket, all of your eggs in that basket, you would have gone bankrupt too, right? If you did self-directed um, investing and you only chose Enron, then you would have gone broke as well. But now if you um, had invested in an ETF with Enron alongside many other companies, then although you lost out on the Enron portion, you would have still um, gained profits and earnings from the other companies, which is why ETFs are strongly, strongly recommended. Now, some of the names that these ETFs have are iShares Core S&P Composite Index, uh, Vanguard is one of them. So these are all just like, don't think much of it. They're just basically names to these ETFs that you can buy. Um, the proportion of what stocks, what companies specifically are within these portfolios are a little bit different. So you can do a little bit of research on that, but you can also see the historical kind of performance of these ETFs. ETFs to decide which one you want to invest in. So those are equities that you can invest in, okay? The stocks, the most commonly discussed uh, types of assets out there. Then there are fixed income assets. And just as the name suggests, what this means is when you buy into a certain asset in this category, you will get a fixed set of income on a timely basis. So one of the most commonly discussed fixed income asset is bonds. 
So what are bonds, right? Bonds are essentially an agreement for you to lend your money to others, either a government or a company. And in return, they promise to pay back your investment at face value, which means the value of your investment work today at a future date. And along the way, they will pay interest on um, the money you're lending. So the key difference between investing in stocks versus investing in bonds is that with bonds, you will get a set income issued to you usually around twice a year. Um, It's very similar to like dividend stocks, which basically are stocks that not only you own a small piece of the company, they also issue dividends, which are small payments to you on a set frequency as well. But with bonds, you don't own any type of company. Even if you lend it, if even if it's a company bond, you don't own a piece of the company. But what that means when you don't own a piece of the company is that you're also not affected by the company performance as much, which means when the company does well, you don't necessarily benefit like you would in a stock market. But also on the flip side of that is when a company does not do well, it also means that you're not affected adversely either. So because it's a steady income stream, although a little bit smaller, um, although the total gains might not be as dramatically high as stocks, um, it is stable and it is lower risk. So for people who, for example, need to withdraw money in the next year or have a low risk tolerance in general, um, bonds will always be kind of a portion of their investment portfolio, whether it's actively managed by a a fund manager or you do it yourself through robo-advising or through self-directed investments, it is recommended that you do invest a small portion of your funds in bonds to kind of lower the overall risk of your investments. Now, another type of fixed income assets that you can invest into, and a lot of banks actually recommend this to younger people who are just starting out a lot, they're called GICs. And what they stand for is Guaranteed Income Certificates. GICs are very similar to bonds. You're lending the bank money for a certain period of time so that they can uh, in turn lend other, their clients um, money in a form of a different lending uh, product such as a mortgage. And for that certain period of time, they will guarantee to pay back your principal while also paying you interest. Now, the thing is, the interest depends on the market. So I'll give you a classic example, okay? When mortgage interest rates are high, when the banks are able to charge a really high mortgage interest rate, they will make a profit even if they're paying you a good amount of interest on your GICs because with your money, they're able to sell a product with an even higher interest rate. So let's say, for example, mortgages, they're going to charge 8% interest, which is like unheard of, okay? (laughs) Let's say it's that high. And they promise with your GICs that they're going to pay you 3%. Then what's happening is they are making money. They're profiting off of that net amount of 5%, right? Now here's the issue, and this is a real world issue. When coronavirus hit, mortgage interest rates hit rock bottom, 
okay? It was like one point something percent at one point. What does that mean? That means now they have to lower the interest rate for GICs as well because they're not gonna profit off of giving you 3%, right? They're gonna lose money. So these banks would then lower the interest rate on the GICs and say, okay, we're gonna only give you 0.5% now, which is honestly what has happened this past year is GIC interest has been terrible. So what we saw was mass amounts of people withdrawing from their GICs or um, breaking their contract on their GICs to invest in the stock market. So um, that's how GICs work. The major, major kind of disadvantage of GICs though is that you have to keep your money there for a certain amount of time. So, you know, usually there's like three-year GICs, for example, there's a one-year GIC and it's just like a contract saying, okay, I'll lend you this amount for that many years and I won't withdraw my money. And so there could be penalties included with withdrawing your money early. Now, I never love the idea of you not being able to access your own funds when you want to, because who knows what the future holds? Who knows when you need a bigger you know, amount of emergency funds? So I don't really love the concept of GICs, plus their um, interest or their yield is usually not as high as like putting it into an ETF. So I don't really love GICs as in general, but I know with a lot of people it helps because A, it's lower risk, it's way lower risk. So if you're someone with, you know, approaching a retirement age or um, if you are someone with family, like members, like young children, and you can't really put all of your eggs in, in risky uh, growth stocks, for example, GICs might be the way to go. Another scenario that I would see GICs being very... Um, and I think this is exactly why they sell to younger people is because if you are new to personal finance, if you're kind of not very principled with using your money, GICs could be a great mechanism to just stow away your money for several years and leaving it untouchable. So you can't just be like, okay, I'm going to spend it all on uh, stuff that I should not be spending on. Um, so in that case, GICs might be a good option as well. And the last asset category that I'm going to talk about today is commodities. So this includes things like precious metals, like gold, maybe even silver. But the most, most um, common commodity that is being traded is obviously gold. So the reason why you might be wondering, like, why do people like invest in gold? They don't really even yields generate any type of income is because it's honestly used as a mechanism to lower the overall risk of your portfolio. And I'll tell you why. Gold or other precious metal commodities are usually seen as the inverse to the stock market performance. And, you know, think of it very easily, right? When the stock market is not doing well, people want to withdraw their money and put it in an asset that's usually not really volatile in price. And gold is one of those assets. So when the stock market is tanking, gold's price actually goes really, really, really high. And you actually can see this historically this past year. This past year is a golden example for the stock market, like for everything the stock market can be doing. Um, but basically, when investors were losing money on their stocks and their ETFs because the global economy was not doing well, gold was doing really well. So if you had a portfolio where you had a little bit of gold in, the, in it, then you would have lost less money than you would have if 100% of your portfolio were ETFs. 
So do you have to choose one asset over another? No, you can have a, a literal mix of everything. You can have individual stocks, you can have ETFs, you can have GI, well, I don't really love GICs, but you can have GICs on the side, you can have bonds, you can have gold, all mixed up in one portfolio, and that's what we call diversification. So in the pyramid of risk, in the bottom, low risk is cash, then gold, and then up a little bit in terms of risk is bonds, and then what's considered the most risky is stocks, but even within stocks, um, ETFs are a bit lower in risk, uh, independent stocks are a bit higher in risk, and especially growth stocks. And so you'll hear this a lot in like social media and stuff. What are growth stocks? Basically, young companies with a ton of funding and a ton of potential, but really aren't showing much profit right now or aren't really going in terms of the technical aspects of the company. They're not really performing that well yet, but they have high potential, which is why a lot of people are investing in it. So they have high potential for high returns, but in the short term, you will see lots of volatility, especially come around the, the end of the quarters where they have to produce and share their quarterly earnings report. Now on to the topic of risk, right? I cannot stress this enough. Young investors, people who are, you know, early into this game, not very familiar, usually overestimate their risk tolerance level. Really, really think about what how would I feel if I lost all of my money today? That's how you should be assessing your risk. And the more objective way of assessing your risk is the time frame. okay? So if you have 10 plus years that you're intending on putting this money in and you're putting more money in over the course of the 10 years and it's a long-term investment that you're seeing, then you can go with a higher risk portfolio or build a higher risk portfolio for yourself because you intend on enduring the short-term ups and downs of the share prices or the price of gold or the price of these bonds, right? But if you say, okay, I have a goal that I really want to go, let's say on a really nice vacation next year, and that's why I'm investing in the stock market right now, you don't want to go with a portfolio where 100% of your portfolio is just stocks because what if the market crashes? What if another pandemic hits? And like you saw in March, all of the shares just all across the stock market just start dipping in price then the next year you're going to have, you know, when you invested $1,000 expecting $2,000, you'll actually have $300 and you won't be able to manage that type of loss, which is why you have to really think about your risk tolerance. It's always, always, always so important to think about your risk tolerance is everything. So now once you understand what you're comfortable with, um, it's time to kind of design your portfolio. And like I said, if you use a robo-advising platform, uh, the, the bot will do it automatically for you. So for example, if you do sign up for Simple, it will automatically allocate based on your risk tolerance, based on the survey that you kind of uh, fill out. But it's still good to understand where your money is going, right? So if you're a super risk loving, you know, you intend on investing for a very long run and you're very comfortable 10 out of 10 in terms of risk, you love it, you're a risk loving person, then your portfolio would be 100% stocks because traditionally ETFs and stocks are the ones that also yield the highest return in the longer run. But it's very 
let's say, very rare that anyone would have 100% just stocks in, in a managed portfolio. That's kind of a, an irresponsible thing to do because although you know it's a long-term investment kind of buy and hold strategy, you don't want to put all of your eggs in one type of investment. It's just not, even if you're the most risk-loving person, it's not the most financially sound thing to do, but technically that's something that you can do. And then there's kind of like a moderately risky, like I'm, I'm pretty risk-loving, I intend on investing for a long period of time. For a long time, my portfolio has actually been set to like a level eight in terms of risk on Wealthsimple, which is like pretty risky. So what that does is like 80% equities and 20% fixed income and commodities. So 80% were uh, ETFs, I had various types of ETFs. So even within your equity investment, you can diversify, right? So it's not like, oh, 80% of my $100, so like $80 was all going into Apple. If I had $80 for equities, I would do um, different ETFs as well. So um, different industries like growth stocks, I had emerging markets, so those are more like growth stocks basically. Um, I had US equities, I had Canadian uh, market equities or ETFs. Um, so it was very diversified. I also have international equities. So even though 80% of my portfolio is in stocks, I'm not literally uh, investing in one company. It's still highly, highly diversified. And I'm investing in things like the S&P 500 index, where it, that alone includes investments into 500 different companies. So those are the equities, and then 20% would go into fixed incomes like bonds, which are usually administered through a bank, a governmental financial institution. And so I think, I believe right now in my Wealthsimple portfolio, I have uh, bonds from BMO. I didn't choose that, but maybe um, Wealthsimple has a partnership with BMO or thinks that that is the best performing one so far. So there's that, so it's 80-20 if your risk level is somewhere around like seven to 10. Then there's like moderate. And when you have moderate risk, it means, you know, in the short term or midterm, like three to five years, you see yourself withdrawing your funds. And that's kind of the life stage that I'm in. Uh, in three to five years, I want to be able to withdraw for my first home. And because that is my goal, currently my, um, portfolio is at like a level six, which is balanced. It wants to be balanced, but also a good portion of it is still in the equity. So I can benefit off of a little bit higher returns than just having a moderate balanced portfolio. So right now it, I have 60% equities and 40% in uh, fixed income and bonds. Now in every managed portfolio, there should be a tiny, tiny portion of it kept as cash. That's just like the 100% safe, most risk averse type of uh, investment out there. So I have a tiny bit in cash as well as part of my portfolio. So that's kind of where I'm at, the level six. And then there's like the risk averse, which would mean, you know, 60% of your, um, your investments would go into fixed income assets and 40% would go into equities, which is the stock market. And you know, it could be 90, 10, it can be adjusted in any way. So if you're doing a self-directed, that's how you should build your portfolio. If your portfolio is managed by either a robo-advisor or a real uh, fund manager, 
both of which would provide you a comprehensive portfolio based on your risk tolerance and your goal. But if you were to build this from scratch alone, I'm just saying that's kind of the proportions that you could use uh, based on what you assess as your risk tolerance. Phew, okay, I think I have covered a lot today. And so by today's episode, you should be able to firstly open up an account with a brokerage of your choice, whichever makes sense to you. And then you should be able to start funding a portfolio or making investment decisions based on your risk tolerance and kind of using the proportions that I've recommended to start building a portfolio for yourself. All right, I've talked a lot for today. This was an extra long episode. So I hope that by the end of today, you will be able to firstly open up an account with a brokerage of your choice. Take a look at their fees. You know, there's so many options out there. As I said, there's banks, there's online brokerages, there's self-directed robo-advising platforms out there. So there's a lot of choice out there. So hopefully you can pick one and get your account opened. And then from there, you can assess your risk tolerance and your goals to understand kind of the type of portfolio that you would like to invest in. And then using the recommendations that I had regards to the proportion of equities versus fixed income versus commodities, you will be able to start building a portfolio that makes sense for you and your future. If you would like next episode, I will cover the technical aspects of analyzing a stock or a company and how to assess whether or not you should be investing in certain stocks and when. So if you're interested in hearing that episode, make sure you are following me on whichever platform you're listening from. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please go ahead and give me a rating and comment. Give me a comment of what you think about this podcast, and I'll see you next week. Hope today's episode was informative and fun. If you'd like to show me some support and also want to get started on Wildsimple today, I actually have a referral link in my description that you can use at sign up. If you use my link, you can get your first 10,000 managed for free for the next 12 months. That's an extra 0.5% savings, which by the way is higher than a bank's savings account interest rate. But shh, I didn't tell you that. If you like this episode, please give my podcast a like, a five-star review, and a follow. Also, go follow me at Wealth by Julia on Instagram for more tips and tricks. I'll talk to you soon.